Welcome to Grace Life Church Podcast. If you would like any more information about us, please visit our website, gracelife.com.au. It was intriguing recently, um, Hollywood released uh, a movie about Napoleon and, you know, the, the French general and just his time during the early 1800s. And I've got to confess I haven't seen it, but it should have him losing the Battle of Waterloo. If he's seen it, does that happen? Because that's, that's historical. And so Waterloo is not just a song from the band ABBA. Uh, it, 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 it was a watershed moment in the history of the wars between France and England. In fact, it, it basically was the end of them there. And Britain's mastery of the sea was demonstrated. She had superior naval power. They had more ships. They had more guns. They'd always believed that their best defence was the sea. And after the war, the Royal Navy, they had this really vast armada of ships at their disposal, but they had no one to fight. And so basically what they did, they took that vast armada of military ships they had and they turned them into scientific discovery. And they wanted to go further than any person had gone before. And so enter these two ships, the Erebus and the Terror, two, two really critical boats. They were built for war, but they were used for discovery. They would be bound for the magnetic north in terms of the Arctic uh, center, the Arctic circle, and also for the Antarctica in the, in the magnetic south. And they'd be used on both occasions to go further than anyone had gone before, to raise the Union Jack, to boost morale in the Commonwealth. And, and basically, these guys were like the astronauts of their day. Those sea captains were like the astronauts of their day. You can just move, move that back. We're not quite there yet. So what they did, basically, they needed to be refitted and gutted. So they took out all the, the military armaments. They refurbished them. They put extra rooms in them. And then they strengthened their hulls because they'd be going into a lot of uh, icy kind of waters. And that's where I'm headed with this morning, which had a potential to get stuck. So when Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 17, he said that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this is exactly what, what Paul had in mind here, because equipped is a seafaring term and it meant that that God's word makes provision for every contingency in life. Equipped, thoroughly equipped. So basically he's saying that God's word, that book you're holding in your laps, there's only there's plenty of books in the world, but there's only one anointed book. There's only one book that you can base your life upon. And this is suitable for that. This is equipped for that. Now back to our story in 1839, Erebus and Terror under the guidance of James Ross they had gone further south, they had mapped out terrain, they had updated their charts, they set up weather stations, discovered new species, they discovered new plants, and so on and so on. And if you know your history, you know that their main port was, was Hobart, or what they called Van Diemen's Land at the time, and it was from there they could go out in their different expeditions. The leader of that expedition uh, was a guy called, as I said, was a guy called James Ross. And that was successful. They came back. And then basically uh, they had a change, they had a change of leadership and 
uh, Franklin basically took over from James Ross, and that's when they began to get into trouble because they basically decided to go to go north. And I'm going to condense a lot of history here in a very, very short amount of time. But within one year, both ships, the Erebus and the, the, and the Terror, had become stranded in the north, in the Arctic Circle. And they stayed there for three years. And they got stuck. Nearly 100 years later, Shackleton, and I've been watching a lot of his uh, documentaries, had a similar expedition down south in the Antarctica in 1915, but he managed to free all of his men. So back to the Erebus and the, in the, and the Terror. 1848, all rescue attempts had been abandoned. In 1854, the local Inuit fishermen, the Eskimos, they, they, they told another ship that was in the area that basically all the men had perished from that boat. Then we're going to fast forward to 2014, some 160 years later, and only 10 years ago, they discovered the wreck of the Erebus in, uh, in, in, the, in, in the province of Canada. And then two years after that, 2016, they discovered the wreck of the terror. And then one of the greatest naval mysteries ever had been solved. So now I just want to ask a question. What do the Hymenius, the Erebus and the Alexander have in common? They're all shipwrecks. One was a boat and the other two were human. Look at what Paul writing to Timothy says in 1 Timothy 1.18. This charge I commit unto you, son, Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that you that by them you might uh, war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. Verse 20, of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Father, I pray right now, God, that our hearts would be open to all that you want to say, to all that you want to speak, and to every soul in this building, that we'd become more like you, Jesus, that you'd help us grow and flourish and not get shipwrecked and unstuck in your kingdom. And I pray your blessing upon this message in Jesus' name. That's what I want to minister on this morning, saints, on how to avoid shipwreck and how to get unstuck. Because the abandonment of faith uh, or a shipwreck faith begs the question, how does this happen? And I'm going to use the seafaring terms as like a metaphor or a parallel for our lives because there are many good analogies that we can take from this. But it's, been, but it's troubled me over the years when I've seen people come and go into the kingdom. I've seen people lay themselves prostrate at an altar, weeping in tears and pray and then get excited for the things of God. But 5, 10, 15 years to trade, you ask, where is that person? What happened? Why are they no longer serving God? How did I end up stranded in ice, spiritually speaking? Why didn't I see the signs? I thought the Christian walk was going to be easier. We don't know if Hymenius and Alexander, we don't really know what they did. Was it a moral failure? Was it doctrinal division? Was it just a slow drift away? But we can find ourselves echoing the words of English poet Robert Browning and he said give the fight up let there be an end a privacy an obscure nook for me I want to be forgotten even by God 
And we don't know how, and we don't know why, but sometimes, saints, we just get stuck. And the thing is, that when it happens and we're in it, we think, I thought I was impervious to this. How could this happen to me? We believe that we could breathe underwater. And whether it's a slow erosion or a sudden unexpected explosion, we come to the point we start thinking, well, Jesus died uh, for sins, but I'm not sure if he died for mine. And I'm not sure if I can continue to make it. So the Erebus and the Terror, they were built for military, they were built for warfare, they were built for victory. But they found themselves stuck in a watery grave. So what I would like to do this morning, just as by way of introduction, probably the longest introduction you've ever heard, we're going to leave these nice confines of Malaga and I'm going to help us to sail on three ships that I believe will go a long way to getting us to where God wants us to be. Amen. So the first ship we're going to sail is citizenship. In Acts chapter 27, verse 1, this is Paul's um, final voyage. Remember, Paul's a prisoner here. And the truth be known, we're all prisoners of something, whether it's a prisoner of ambition, a prisoner of desire, prisoner of a habit, career, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. We're all prisoners here, so we can all identify with Paul's life. He's under military guard, and he's to appear and appeal before Caesar in Rome, but he doesn't know at this point he's headed for shipwreck. The Bible says in Acts chapter 27, and forgive me for not going through the entire chapter, but we'll be here all afternoon if we do that. So I'm just going to highlight certain portions of it, but I encourage you to read the entire chapter sometime this week. It says here in verse 1, When it was decided that we would set sail for Italy, and they transferred Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Skip down to verse 6. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship bound for Italy, and he put us on board. So if I can paraphrase the previous two chapters, and Luke's recording all of this for us in the book of Acts, he had appeared before a trial, a court of law in Jerusalem and Caesarea, and he argues by saying that he's done nothing but preach the truth, that this is the hope of our forefathers, this was the hope of our ancestors, and this is what you're trying me for. And you're going to go toe-to-toe with Paul on doctrine and prophecy and Old Testament law? Good luck with that. But still it's falling on deaf ears, so he plays another card. And just by the way, I'm Italian. How many Italians have we got here? Amen. I'm a Roman citizen. And that sends them a little bit lizard brain and they think, oh my goodness, we can't just, you know, cast this guy aside. We can't just lock him up. He's appealed to Rome, therefore he's going to go to Rome. And by saying that, by Paul saying, I'm a Roman citizen, he's saying, I'm afforded certain inalienable rights because my citizenship means something. It costs something. And what I would like to declare to you this morning is that you're a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of heaven, and that means something. That means that you don't belong to this world. You're not just dancing to your DNA. You're not just cosmic dust just floating through. In you, deity reigns. 
And this isn't our final home. We're pilgrims and citizens of another country just passing through. Your passport has been stamped in blood, through the blood of Jesus. And it identifies you with heaven. And you're the beneficiaries of heaven's entitlements and privileges along with the responsibilities of that. Because how many realize being a citizen of heaven, that puts some demands on your life as well. Hebrews puts it this way in, in chapter 12, verse 22, But you are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an, innu- uh, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the fourth firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. You're a citizen of another country. You know, when just before the crucifixion, when Jesus is praying to the disciples in John chapter 17, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So Jesus, think about this. He doesn't ask the Father to isolate us from the world, does he? But he does ask us to insulate them from the evil one. He's left us in the world on purpose for his purpose. You're here for a reason this morning. Thank God you're a citizen of heaven, but that doesn't mean you just float idly by. In Acts chapter 27, if we, if we come back to this, because Christians who avoid shipwreck and getting stuck are the ones who learn to, live, to play a long game. In other words, we keep our eyes heaven bound. In Acts chapter 27, back in our text, I'm going to read verses 13 uh, through to 16. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous wind, headwind rose called Euryclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secure the stiff with difficulty. We just ponder this and park here for a second because here on this ship bound for Italy Paul with all the regiment of the soldiers uh, and with all the other prisoners they're staying basically I'm paraphrasing this say stay close to the coast because they don't want to be caught out in the open waters but even doing that they get hit by uh, the Euryclidon wind which is basically another word for a northeasterly and they're trying to run into it and they can't they can't maneuver it so the scripture says that when the ship was caught and they could not enter into the wind, notice they tried, we let her drive and running under the shelter of her uncle Claudia, we secured the stiff. So in other words, what it's saying there, there comes a point where there's no point fighting this. Just go with the knowledge that you're a citizen of heaven and God is going to look after you. Because how many people realize there's no version of life that doesn't involve pain? And you'll face these Euryclidon winds. They will come from time to time in financial form, in relational form, marital form, physical form. And it's natural and normal for you to try and fight it and get out of it. But can I tell you from experience, sometimes just trust God and let the storm pass. And God will turn that page in your life and you'll look back and go, that was amazing. We fret, we get anxious. That's why Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, 
If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is then when Christ who is your life appears, there you will also there you also will appear with him in glory. It will pass sense. And if you've served God for any period of time, you will see his hand upon your life and he will turn that page. But Paul is admonishing us here to fix our sails heavenward, isn't he? And you kind of picked up the theme this morning for what uh, 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 Pastor Brett was saying, is that we don't, we, don't, we don't look here at the temporal, we're looking at the eternal. Back to our story in our narrative, in April 1848, the Erebus had to endure one of the bleakest winters on record. In the winter of 1848, Erebus had endured nearly three months of darkness. And what's ironic about that is that the actual name of the boat, the Erebus, uh, uh, means in the Greek personification of darkness. An untimely prophetic word, no doubt. You see, this would impact your vision short term and long term. You know, as, as humans, as we get older, and I've discovered this in the last year, are two things. A, I've needed a physiotherapist. I'm 55. And I've also needed glasses. But we all need kind of corrective vision. There's two types of vision that we need. First thing we need is insight into God's word. That's why David prayed in Psalms 118, Lord, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things from your law. We need insight into God's word. And we also need foresight. We need a prophetic understanding of what's in store for the, for the future. The Bible says in Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no revelation that people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. And the reason we need this is because we can develop uh, a kind of myopia. Now, if you know what myopia is, it, it's, it, it's, it, seeing things up close is okay. But when you see things at a distance, they're a little bit blurry. And so spiritually seek, uh, speaking, saints, we get a bit of spiritual myopia. It's like, God, I just cannot see the possibilities here. I can't see this working. I can't see this playing out. Just let God turn that page in your life. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. The former heavyweight champion of the world at the turn of the last century is a guy called um, Jim Corbett. And after he won, secured the world title, heavyweight championship of the world, the reporter said to him, what did it take to win the title? You know what he said? Just one more round. Just one more round. In other words, just keep going. Half this gig, church, let me tell you, it's just showing up. It's just showing up. It's just being faithful. We need illumination. We also need purification. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who has his hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. Now in our story with the Erebus and the, and the terror, when they were discovered just merely 10 years ago, um, archaeologists and historians realized and found with the DNA that these people had died from, a lot of them had died from lead poisoning. 
And so what the, with the, they got, they got botulism and they got that from the cans of food that they had stored on the ship. They got the cheap variety that weren't preserved properly. And so a lot of them just died from poisoning. Now we get contaminated in our day and age, not from lead poisoning, but from secularization, don't we? Our environment, if you discover that, it's becoming increasingly more and more hostile to what you believe. And I think, you know what, at times, saints, we've got to be careful. We, with this, we've got to remember whose kingdom we're a part of. Whose citizen are you really of? I'm proud of my Australian citizenship, and some of you, you've got Jules, some of British, New Zealand, whatever it is. They're all trumped. They're all superseded by my citizenship in heaven. That's my priority. We ought not to get our kingdoms confused. When I was, um, I remember doing a degree in history and I, I remember a lecture and this lecture was talking, he used the word liminality and the word liminality we was talking about in, rela in relation to Turkey, how, you know, Turkey sits at the cradle of Europe, uh, Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and from time to time, they try and get themselves into Europe. They're sort of in this transition period, but then they keep getting knocked back by Europe, and so they go back to their Middle Eastern roots. And the said he was saying that like Turkey's a country in liminality, and I was thinking about that. That's a picture of us. It's the, it's the now, but not quite. We're saved, and we're going to be saved, aren't we? We're going. This is not our home, but we feel it in our hearts. We're not. We're not quite there yet. We're not where. Uh, God has our final destination, but we're in this period of transition. And we need to live in transition. Heaven's not just a destination, but it's a motivation. It's why, listen carefully to what I'm saying, it's why you never feel quite right here. It's why you'll never feel completely at home on this earth. Because it's not your home. You're not home yet. We're pilgrims. So I'm saying all this to say that if we have walked with this understanding, our natural gate is one of, you know what, I'm a citizen of heaven and I'm going to board this citizenship, then that's going to go a long way to getting you through and keeping you unstuck. Let me move secondly, quickly to the next ship, and that's friendship. You with me so far? Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falls, for there is not another to help him up. Mother Teresa said the biggest disease today is not leprosy or tuberculosis, but rather the feeling of being unwanted. See, when we begin, when we isolate ourselves, we become an island unto ourselves. Remember the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? Start drawing faces on volleyballs. Talking to it. Wilson. You got some Wilsons in your life? Instead of embracing friendship, fellowship, mateship, kinship. I could have used a number of words for this point, couldn't I? We end up being a ghost ship. I remember, year, I remember uh, recently just looking into this 
uh, mystery of the Mary Celeste. You familiar with the with the Mary Celeste, the boat that they found? It left uh, New York Harbor on November the seventh, eighteen seventy-two, and was discovered nearly a month later, just roaming the sea. Picked up by another British boat, and they went on board. There's no sign of struggle. There's no sign of violence. The entire cargo is still left on the boat. It was carrying a lot of alcohol to Italy. All the all the captain, the person, all the belongings were still intact. It's like they literally had no idea what happened. There was no one left on this boat. And it's just floating in the middle of the sea. Some of us can be a bit like that, can't we? We're existing, we're coming to church, we're going through the motions, but there's no life on board. In retrospect, going back to the Erebus and the Terror, one of the mistakes that the expedition made was when they realised they were stuck, they splintered into different directions and they abandoned the confines of their ship. They didn't take the advice from the local Inuit Eskimos. Had they done that, they might have been saved. See, we need saints carefully voices of affirmation in our life you need others to draw out your potential i know you're a hot shot i know you think you got it all together but there are people that god has put in your life to bring out your potential you know for nasa to put a man on the moon they estimate it took four hundred thousand people to do it to put one man Two men on the moon, or three really technically, but one stayed in the ship. You see, no one is in your life by accident. No one in your life is, 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 no one in your life is there by accident. We write people off so quickly, don't we? Too old, too young, too weird, too needy. And we're quick to pass judgment on them. I'm always interested, one of the, my favorite stories in the Bible is that when the children of Israel, um, they're going to walk in and enter into the promised land and, and filled with the Spirit of God and filled with zeal. And you remember they sent the spies in. And who would you think that God would use to harbor those spies? You'd want some kind of prominent leader, some kind of link man, some kind of person who's got influence in the city. And who does God choose? A harlot. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor because he gets the glory that way. She would have been written off by probably every one of those spies, but God said, no, nah, this is the person that I'm choosing. You know, that's why, saints, we've got to be intentional with your friends. Make time to catch up. Make time to grab a coffee. Even if it means putting it in your diary. Yeah, but we've had a falling out. Fix it. Be the bigger person. Augustine said pride is a mother and gives birth to all sins. We come back into our text here. Uh, Paul's anticipating trouble and with prophetic insight and careful analysis, he announces in verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading of the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and by the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. 
and because the harbour was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbour of Crete opening towards the southwest and northwest and winter there. No doubt the, the owner of the ship, they're thinking of his cargo, which is full of, full of wheat as well, apart from the prisoners, and uh, he doesn't want to lose this. And so Paul's in the minority here, but as we read, he's heard from God and he's been in this situation before. He's already been in two shipwrecks. There's a couple of thoughts here that we can look. You know, Paul wasn't alone. There were other prisoners with him. And in every step of the way, you read as you read, and you take the time to read this and you'll see exactly what I'm saying. He has their needs before his. He knew what God was going to do with his life, but he, but he makes sure he brings these people with him. Not one of you are going to lose your life if you hang out with me. That's a bold statement, isn't it? Not one of you will lose your life. It's interesting when, um, you know, with the other thing too, regarding to those prisoners, we don't know exactly, the Bible doesn't really tell us what they're for, but they're either... Uh, what a few commentators and scholars have picked up on is they were probably being sent to Rome as fodder for the gladiatorial games. So these guys are more likely not we're going to lose their life anyway. But what Paul is saying, not on my watch. There's a lesson in leadership right there, isn't it? We put others first. There was a time, you know, when David, he was longing. He was in the midst of battle against the Philistines. And he just makes it it's almost off-the-cuff statement, oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. He's being reminiscent of his childhood, of times he's had there, and the water there, I just, if I could have that. So the three mighty men who broke through the camp of the Philistines drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate. They took it and brought it to David. The Bible says, nevertheless, he would not drink it, but he poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this, is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives, therefore he would not drink it. It's an interesting little passage of scripture, isn't it? Is that these men, their hearts are so linked to David's that you want to drink a water, we'll go through a garrison, we'll go through 20 Philistines to get it for you. And they risk their lives, they get the water, they bring it back, and what does David do? In humility and devotion, he pours it out. And he did that because he realized something. There's a level of devotion here that belongs to God alone. What we do sometimes, we take that water, we drink it, go and get me another one. We use our friends. We don't always put their needs first. But David says, I can't drink this. Look at what they've done. That's the first thing. The second thing is the majority council. Look what the Bible says, the majority advised. Can you almost imagine the smugness too? Like Paul, just, by the way, you're a tent maker. We do this for a living. And he told them not to do it. He said, don't go that way. But they did it anyway. Can I ask you this morning, whose voice do you listen to? Who are the voices that ring loudest in your life? 
What are the voices of affirmation that you so desperately cling to? You know what? The Bible says when Jesus came, he was full of grace and he was full of truth. Still in the line. You know what grace says? Grace says, I'm going to love you no matter what. No matter what you go through, no matter what happens, I'm there for you. But truth says, I'm going to be honest with you no matter what. And if occasionally I've got to get in your grill, it's coming from a place of love. And they're the voices you want to ring loudest in your life. The people who've got the biggest investment in you. I think the reason that one of our, I think one of the reasons our faith gets shipwrecked and we get stuck in a rut is that quite simply the bonds of fellowship that have helped us get this far, we let go of. Paul didn't lose a single man. The Erebus lost every man. Let me just close with this one thought. We've got the ship of citizenship. We're going to sail it with, with friendship, but we also need to board worship. Acts chapter 27, verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when they had all broken it, when they had broken it, he began to eat. So just a few thoughts here about what I mean about boarding the ship of worship. First thing is quite obvious, and that is that worship, as we discovered this morning, is audible, isn't it? The scripture says there in verse uh, 35, And when he had said all these things, he took bread and gave thanks to them in the presence of them all. The book of Hebrews calls us to give the fruit of our lips. Verses, uh, chapter 13, verse 15, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. This is really critical. Don't go to sleep on this point. It could change your life. In the book of Acts chapter 16, you know, when uh, Paul and Silas, and they get thrown into a prison. And it's the midnight hour, the Bible says, and they're destitute. And they're alone and they're probably thinking, oh God, what has happened? We're meant to be preaching the gospel throughout the whole of Asia. We're meant to be doing miracles. We're meant to be doing signs and wonders. And we're in prison. And their hands and their feet are stocked to the walls. And what do they begin to do? They begin to sing praises to God. They begin to lift their voices. Don't have a guitar player. Don't have a keyboard. Don't have a drummer. Don't have a song sheet. Don't have a projector with words. What are they doing? They're lifting. They're taking their eyes off of their problem and putting them onto the answer. Off of the problem and onto the answer. And so what it says in Psalms, doesn't it? It says, God inhabits, God or God enthrones the praises of his people. When you begin to praise God out loud, when you begin to worship God, when you begin to give the fruit of your lips, you bring God into your presence. You bring God into your sphere. And it's at those times when you don't feel like praising him, that's the best time to do it. There's power and praise. Because it's not your performance, but it's God's presence that counts. It's not your performance, but it's God's presence that counts. There's power and praise. There's also power and silence. I was reading today in my Bible reading Psalms chapter 46. 
ironically, probably by divine appointment, I would say, and Lord says in verse uh, chapter uh, 46, verse 10, be still and know that you are God. Sometimes it's loud and audible, and sometimes it's, it, we've got to cultivate that still small voice, don't we? Meditation is a seedbed of innovation. Silence is a seedbed of insight. Worship is audible. It's also behavioral. In other words, we worship with our lifestyle. First Peter 1.15, But as he who, he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. A.W. Tozer said, Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard because he is that standard. God has made holiness the moral condition necessary to the health of his universe. We read in the book of Isaiah, for Isaiah was his tongue, chapter 6, verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, they covered their, uh, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. And then God begins to cleanse him if you read on to the rest of that. But the repeat of the word holy, holy, holy was to incorporate and to him to understand the totality of God's holiness. So holy that the Bible says the angels, they had to cover their own eyes. They couldn't look on God. Their wings covered their eyes. When Moses approached the burning bush, when he approached the very presence of God, what did he have to do to take his sandals off? You're on holy ground. The sole of your feet is some of the most sensitive parts of our body. And God wants to come into contact with the most sensitive parts of your life. In New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's, the Bible says it, that God dwells in unapproachable life. No man can stand there on his own strength. No man is secure enough. It, it's unapproachable. God is so holy. We desperately need the blood of Jesus, don't we? You shall be holy, for I am holy. And with my walk, I will conduct myself with the knowledge that you're worthy of the best of my... We worship God with our lifestyle. I could... If I had time, we'd go on, we could talk about giving as well. That's an act of worship. But our worship is audible, it's behavioral, and it also has to be grateful. Let me just close with this thought here. Because it says here, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. A worshipful people are a grateful people. Proverbs thirty fifteen says, The leech has two daughters, give and give. There are three things that are never satisfied and four never say enough. The revelation that Solomon's bringing here, this said, he wants to use the analogy of, of nature with a leech, and that is, you know, it, it, it never has enough. It's never satisfied. It's never satiated. It never says, I'm, I'm full, I've had enough. And that's the thing with ungrateful people is that nothing's ever good enough for them. But do you know what? In your relationship with God, it would really help every day. And I've been as guilty as this as, as the next person. We need to be thankful for God for what he's given us. We need to be grateful for the blessings that he's brought us. So how does this shipwreck end? Let me just close with these couple of verses here. Verse 42. 
and the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. This is after, and I'm condensing a lot of the chapter 7, 27 here. They see an island, their, their boat's about to be broken up, and, they, and the soldiers and the captain, the centurion, start panicking. And that's why the scripture says the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. Verse 44, And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. These men arrived safely. They survived the carnage that had happened on the water on bits and pieces from the broken boat. The psalmist cried out in Psalm 34, The, uh, the righteous cry out, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken spirit and saves such who have a, who have a contrite spirit. And just this thought here, as they came to the shore on all those different pieces, your brokenness, your afflictions, your addictions, they can be a gift. They're the parts that God gets involved in, the broken pieces of your life. They're the pieces that, that God can take and mend, and he'll get the glory for it. And it's his prerogative. It was his prerogative to get them to land. Some of it will be on parts of a ship and some of it on broken planks and some of them, whatever means that God chooses, but he will fulfill. He, 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 you'll make it in the Christian walk, not because you're such a good follower, but because Jesus is such a good leader. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Give that brokenness to the Lord. Amen. We want to avoid shipwreck. We need to have the understanding that we're that we need to board citizenship. We need to understand that we're not of this country. And that means we're going to keep our eyes heavenward and not on the things of this earth. Secondly, we need to board friendship. We need we need those voices of affirmation around us. We need our bros. We need our sisters. We need that strength of encouragement. We can't make it on our own. And finally, we need to board the ship of worship. And that involves being audible. That, that involves our lifestyle and being behavioral. And it also involves us being grateful. And if we'll do that and we'll make those decisions, whether it's on broken pieces or planks, God's promise is that he'll bring us home. And we don't have to be stuck. And we don't have to be shipwrecked. Can you say amen to that? Praise the Lord. Let's let every head be bowed and every eye closed, please. If you don't mind, just in respect to the person next to you, just in respect to God, I just want to give a brief invitation right now that if you're not a Christian and you found yourself in this building this morning, I don't believe you're here by accident. I believe God has brought you here. And under the sound of my voice, you want to know the joy that these people have, the reason they could sing like they do before the preaching of this message, the smile on their faces are there. We're just a people who know that our sins have been forgiven. We're not perfect. We go through stuff. We go through trials and at times we get on pretty rough waters ourselves. But we know who the captain of our ship is. We know where we're headed. 
So I just want to give an invitation right now that there's a God who loves you so much so that he came down in the form of a man and died on the cross for your sin. He died in your place. Jesus Christ loves you with an everlasting love. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe upon him should not perish but have everlasting life. If that's you this morning and you're not a Christian but you'd like to be, I want you to do one simple thing. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to sign anything or join a church. Just with an uplifted hand, say, Preacher, Pastor, I want to get my heart right with God. If that's you, raise your hand. Anyone at all. You're not a Christian, but you'd like to be. Maybe you once to walk with God, but you can relate to what I'm saying this morning because you've led your faith go a little shipwrecked and you've gone a little wayward and you want to get your heart right with God this morning. You want to come home, just raise your hand. I count it a joy to lead you in prayer. Anyone at all. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise be unto Jesus. Then one final thing just before I hand it back over to Brett. If you feel God speaking to you about any part of this message while we're singing and worshipping, just in your chair or come down the front, if you're feeling, God, you know what? I haven't really been living like I'm a citizen of heaven. I've got my kingdoms a bit confused. But I want to realign myself and realize the reason I feel this ache in my heart is because I'm not home. And I want to get my eyes more firmly. Maybe... God is dealing with you about some friendships. Maybe you've been abusive or maybe you've let things go and there's unease and you realize now that, you know what, I could have been a better friend. I could be a better friend. And you realize the importance of that and voices of affirmation that you're going to learn to encourage people a little bit more. And maybe God is speaking to you about worshipping. Even when you don't feel like it, God, audibly, I'm going, to, I'm going to get up and I'm going to give you praise. With my lifestyle, with my tongue, I'm going to live in holiness because you are holy. The expression of your nature is holiness. And I'm going to be grateful. I'm not going to be like the leech that's always sucking life. I'm just going to. God, I feel so blessed by what you've given me. I'm so grateful. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast from Grace Life Church. For more information about us or any of our services, please visit our website at gracelife.com.au.